Welcome to Mortals, a podcast where we explore how humans have managed their dead throughout history. From barrows and burials to cremations and kurgans. We are taking a look at rites, rituals, and practices from around the world. Mortals podcast is for the morbidly curious or the curiously morbid. This week, we are going to be talking about post-mortem photography. Please be aware this episode contains mentions of stillborn infants, child and birthing deaths, as well as the physical manipulation of bodies post-mortem. Let's get on to the show. Uh, I'm going to be talking to you about postmortem photography this week. And before I get into exactly what I mean by that, I just wanted to ask, what do you like to take photos of in your daily life? Uh, to be honest, I don't take a lot of photos. I often wish I did, but I don't. I take... Dogs. I like, I like pictures of dogs. <laughs> I take a... I think the most of my gallery is actually screen caps of memes. But... <laughs> Aside from that, but aside from that, it's, uh, I'm one of those people that likes to take pictures of my food. Not to, like, post anywhere, but I really like cooking, and I have a friend that really likes cooking, and we send each other photos of what we cooked, so. I also have a lot of, like, work-related photos at the, from the museum, so, like, there's a mm -hmm. lot of pictures of crumbling plaster and water damage <laughs> in my phone, but... <laughs> So All like right. So for the photo for the photos that you do decide to take, what uh, what makes you take photos of those things? Would you say? I like food, and I have memorializing. To. Memorializing what exactly? The moment, the time, the existence. For dogs, yeah. right now, the two dogs that I have access to are both quite up there in years. Hmm. So you want to you want to remember them somehow? Yeah, essentially. All right. Do you think that? The photos you choose to take, is that choice influenced by how easily you're able to take photos nowadays? So, Christia, if uh, you had to take photos with a, an old film camera, do you think you'd be taking so many photos of your food? Uh, probably definitely not, just simply because my camera is with me at all times, and I don't think I could carry around a big, chunky camera. Mm -hmm. And plus, I'd have to go and get it developed. Yeah, so, exactly. So there's a lot of steps involved. Yeah, it's not just a one and done process. And I can send it to, I can send pictures of my shitty food to my friend in seconds, as opposed to like yeah. getting it developed, mailing it. Yeah, what about you, Mariah? Uh, funny you should ask, because I did take a number of photography courses back in high school, and we started off with photo boxes, which took 10 to 60 seconds to take a photo, so to speak. And you had to develop it by yourself in a black or in a dark room. That's what they're called in a dark room. Mm. Uh, but I definitely, if that was how I had to take photos all the time, I would not take a lot of photos because it would be an absolute endeavor to do. Uh, yeah, exactly. So let's uh, let's complicate this one step further. What if, in order to take photos, you either had to bring a photographer to you, or you had to go to their studio? At that point, what would you choose to save memories of? How would you make those choices? How would you triage those memories? Well, I'd do a lot more drawing now, wouldn't I? <laughs> yeah? 
I would probably uh, put a lot more effort into how I look or how what I want photographed, like how that looks. So if I was going to go get myself, if if I was going to go take a selfie at a studio, you bet your ass I would like falsies and, you know, all gussied, all gussied up my nicest shirt or dress or whatever I choose to wear that day or nothing. I might just go, you know, go full nudes. <laughs> yeah, so at that point, photography really becomes an event, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're prepping for it. You're making sure everything's perfect because you only get a certain amount of time or a certain number of shots, especially if uh, you have to go to a photographer or to their studio. It's going to cost you some coin, right? Yeah. But why ever do you ask these questions, Janine? <laughs> Well, uh, directly related to the topic of this week, which is post-mortem photography. So (gasps) what exactly is that, you might ask? It's exactly as it sounds. It's the practice of photographing the recently deceased. So as you might expect, this is done in order to have a memento to remember a deceased loved one by. Uh, So it's not just done willy-nilly because they want to have this photo of a dead person just to look at for no reason, it's usually done because it's someone that they care about. Um, So you'll see quite often photos of mothers holding their deceased children or their infants. Those are pretty common. Usually family photos is the most often that you'll see in post-mortem photography. When was this happening, might you ask? So this started happening around the 1840s. And this was practiced around the world, not just in certain areas, though it was more predominant in Western culture, Europe, the UK, the USA, Canada, and then even Australia. There's some instances in Australia and even Iceland as well, although that is probably considered part of Europe. And access to this became more commonplace as photography became cheaper and more accessible to the middle class. The practice of post-mortem photography actually has its roots in post-mortem portraiture, which is the process of painting a portrait of a deceased person. Aha! This seems to have have emerged in around the 16th century, and it was restricted mostly to upper-class families, royals, influential people. They were able to commission portraits of recently deceased loved ones, often on their deathbed or in a funerary pose. So if you think a photo of someone in their casket today, that kind of lie back in repose, that's what these portraits would look like. As you can imagine, this would be accessible only to those who could afford to pay to have the portrait done. So it takes a long time for these portraits to be done. But of course, for the the painter, the subject is dead. So it's a lot easier than trying to paint a portrait of <laughs> a live subject. Yeah, it doesn't move quite so much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we'll see that uh, that advantage follow through in the photography as well. The deathbed portrait of Christian IV, King of Denmark by Berendt Hilwaits in 1650 is an example of this. And there are many more examples of these kind of portraits in history. A lot of the ones that I came across in my searching seemed to be done by unnamed artists. I don't know why that is, but they were generally commissioned by wealthy families. So maybe it's more important. It was more important to know who it was of rather than who was the person behind the paintbrush, I suppose. 
So the question is, why did people decide to take photos of dead people? That's something that seems very out of place to us today. If you just tell someone, oh yeah, my grandfather recently died and we all gathered together as a family and he was all gussied up in his Sunday best and we posed and took a, one last family photo. Most people would raise their eyebrow at that today. This was not so in the 1800s, which is the time period that we're particularly talking about when this whole convention started. So why? Why did people decide to do this, you might ask? There are a few reasons that people would do this. So in the 1800s or the 19th century, the general mortality rate of the population was quite high, and this is for a number of reasons. So first of all, the effect of rapid urbanization, unaccompanied by scientific knowledge about conditions for disease transmission. So when you have higher numbers of people living in closer quarters and you don't have the accompanying knowledge about how disease spreads, you're going to get more disease spread. So epidemics such as diphtheria, typhus, cholera, diseases like measles, scarlet fever, rubella, these would circulate through populations quite easily and it would lead to a higher mortality rate. There's a whole banquet of mortality. Yep, yeah, for sure. Those, uh, those bugs, those diseases sure found their way around quite easily back in those times. The mortality rate was particularly high for children and infants. And I looked mm. up some data about this. There was one source that kind of tried to compile global information about this. So not just focused on the Western world, but the globe as a whole. So prior to the 20th century, about one quarter of infants died. So that means before Ooh, their first year, generally before they turn one, they died. So one quarter of children born died basically before their first birthday. And one half of children born did not reach adulthood. Yikes. Hmm. That's so many. Yeah. So quite a high mortality rate up until the 20th century. So this is basically, when you're looking at the grand scheme of things, this is basically all of human history minus a century and some change. Oof. Yeah. Jesus. And as I said, this is true globally across most cultures up until the 20th century. So we're not just talking about the Western world here. Yeah, that's a lot. Definitely uh, lends a lot of credence to the whole idea of the Victorian child being a ghost in so many different stories. <laughs> yeah, it definitely bred a culture where death was common. Um, more People were more in touch and more closely linked to death than we are nowadays. So from the 20th century onwards, we see a sharp decline in child mortality. And today, about 95% of children born worldwide survive now. There are obviously differences in different parts of the world, but that is the general mortality rate, the global mortality rate. So about 95 survive now. Um, yeah, and it's trending that way right now as well, right? Child mortality is constantly trending downwards. Just, if you yes, needed good exactly. news today... <laughs> yeah, so if you look at this chart that these uh, researchers have compiled, it's quite, quite a steep uh, decline in the mortality rate. So just very sharp, right down to the bottom of the graph. Uh, I just wanted to comment on what you said about how it bred a culture that was accepting of death. And it just reminded me of something that an anthropology professor 
I had once say, uh, and that was that in general, a culture where death is more commonly accepted, sex is kind of, you know, it's a bit more hush-hush and vice versa. If there is a culture that has a lot of acceptance of sex, then death is kind of shoveled to the back of the societal psyche. So I just oh. I find that very applicable here, considering 19th century attitudes towards sex. Yeah, 100%. Um, and that's that's an interesting, I've never actually heard that juxtaposition before, but we are definitely nowadays in a time where sex is widely accepted, at least in circles that aren't uh, ultra... Less conservative. Um, exactly. And death yeah. is kind of taken a backseat in our society, except for this Very podcast. <laughs> Except for this podcast. Welcome to That's the revolution. That's what we're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. So luckily, in nowadays, we've seen such a sharp decline in child mortality. But back in the 19th century, it was not only the children that were dying, but also the mothers giving birth. They, too, had a higher mortality rate than today. Mm. So just as a, an example, mothers giving birth in the year 1900 were 65 times more likely to die than mothers giving birth today. Ooh, that's a lot. Yeah. So today, the prospect of a mother surviving giving birth has improved, partially due to the medicalization of birth, uh, whether that itself is good or bad. Seeing midwives pushed to the back in favor of doctors, that's a whole other topic. But the one positive out of it is that mothers giving birth are more likely to survive today. So yes, that's pretty good. Yeah, you don't hear a lot about people giving birth and dying during the process. It's just, it's considered something kind of shocking nowadays, which really goes to yeah. show how far we've come in terms of fertility care. Still a long ways to go, but... I've heard that a lot of the time nowadays, it's actually, especially in the States, Black women are the most likely to die in childbirth, especially in America. And I'm sure that there's probably also stats for Canada as well, just because mm -hmm. um, their pain is often, and women in general, but specifically to a higher degree, Black women, they are not listened to by medical professionals. Yes, something that is true. Depressing and awful that mm. I heard. Unfortunate. An unfortunate effect of a racist society. Yeah, and an yeah. important addendum as well to consider when we're talking about these topics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So all of these factors, the general mortality rate being higher, rapid urbanization, the proliferation of diseases, infant mortality rate, mother mortality rate, all of this affects overall population mortality. And we see that death is more a part of everyday life, more easily integrated with everyday culture. The second factor that led to the rise of post-mortem photography is, of course, the fact that photography itself was becoming more accessible in the 19th century. So we're going to take a, take a brief foray here into the history of photography, because I think it's important to know this background to understand why it was such a phenomenon to take photos of your deceased loved ones before you lay them to rest for eternity. So what we know as photography today really only started being developed after about the year 1700. So there are a few different names to a few different people who were experimenting with chemicals and light exposure in order to leave an image behind, such as Johann Heinrich Schulze, Carl Wilhelm Schiele and Thomas Wedgwood. There's a few of the uh, the names there, two of those being German, one being English, I believe. 
But it wasn't until 1816 when French inventor Joseph Nicephore Nifs began his foray into photography technology, and he is known as the inventor of photography for all intents and purposes. So the earliest known photo, the earliest known remaining photo that we know of is one of his from either 1826 or 1827. Important to point out, possibly something was earlier, but this is the earliest known remaining photo that we have. Uh, it's called A View from the Window at Le Gras, which is a photograph of the countryside surrounding Yip's estate, kind of butchering his name here. Um, oh, you're doing a much better job than I could even attempt, so kudos to you for that. I will spell it out in case people are interested, because it's a rather awkward spelling. It's spelled N-I-E. P-C-E, Nieps. So this, this photograph, or the negative, shall we say, of this photograph, it's not a negative that we would think of in the typical sense. It's on, I think it's on metal. So chemicals oh. on metal. I can't remember exactly how the, the format is, but it's held at the University of Texas at Austin's Harry Ransom Center. So the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas in Austin which is an archive, museum, and library. So that is where the earliest known remaining photo is being held. Huh. And if you can, if you can find it online, uh, it's actually really easy to find. I think there's a Wikipedia page for it. So if you just search view from the window at Le Gras, L-E-G-R-A-S, you'll be able to see the first ever photograph, potentially the first ever photograph, probably the first ever photograph. Ooh. It's pretty blurry. You can't really see a whole lot of detail, but considering it was a brand new invention, brand new technology, pretty cool, I'd say. And kudos to the University of Texas at Austin for having that in their collection. That's pretty cool. Interesting. So much science behind that sort of thing as well and trying to figure out what reacts with what and to what UV light and for how long do you expose it and how do you process it to make it react, mm -hmm. be mm -hmm. stable, stable, not stable. I was yeah. I was looking at because we have multiple like nineteenth century photographs at the museum that Janine and I work at, and in order to understand how to best look after them, I was trying to figure out exactly what they were composed of, and it's really interesting just how much like mercury and silver and <laughs> just generally toxic things are so used tasty. in their construction, which was really interesting. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of chemistry involved. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, Neeps, 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 he partnered with a, a man named Louis Daguerre, who is also French. And Daguerre carried on their work after Neeps' death in 1833. Oh, yeah. So, the first the, photograph. Sorry, I was just going to say the daguerreotype, right? Yeah, that's where we're, that's where we're headed with this. Yeah. Ooh, I know things. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so just to, to refresh, 1826-1827 uh, is that first photograph. Neeps dies in 1833, so only about six years later. And his partner, Daguerre, creates the daguerreotype, which is the first publicly available photographic process. And this is used widely throughout the 1840s and the 1850s. So we're already halfway through the 19th century, and... Photographs are just kind of becoming accessible to the public. Yeah, the new hot thing. Exactly. Kind of novel and 
more accessible to the middle classes than paying for someone to paint your portrait. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so the daguerreotype is used through the 1840s and 1850s, but by the 1860s, a format of photography called carte de visite was popularized, and this is a format which allowed multiple printings of a single photographic shot to be easily made. That would make a huge difference. Absolutely, absolutely. Rather than just having one memento of that moment, you can have multiple, you can share it with your friends and family, trading card style. (laughs) (laughs) So with the popularization of daguerreotypes and carte de visite, photography obviously became more accessible to the public, at least for those with the means to pay for that. It wasn't quite as expensive as portraiture, but not so expensive that it was out of reach for the middle class. So we have a high mortality rate in this time period and the proliferation of a more accessible means of memorializing moments in time. And what does this result in? Postmortem photography, obviously. <laughs> what, do you, what do you want to memorialize more than someone who you're never going to get the chance to see again, right? Well, that and there probably wasn't a lot of opportunities to take photos before that as well, right? So if you're going to have one photo of somebody and your only chance is after they've died, then I guess, I mean, that's when you do it. Yeah, that's when you get everybody over in their Sunday best, and you and you prop grandpa up, and away you go. Yeah, as as we kind of touched on at the beginning of the the episode, it photography becomes an event at that point, especially if you don't have a smartphone camera at the tips of your fingers to take a photo every <laughs> second of the day, right? Yep. And what better event than the death of a loved one to take a moment to memorialize and make a memory out of that? Yeah. Yeah. So. Most study into this practice, the practice of postmortem photography, revolves around Europe and North America, and it's notably popular in Victorian-era Britain, which is around the 1860s to the 1910s. And in the 19th century, death and memorialization or funerals in Western culture usually happened at home. So these postmortem photographs, these photographs of the dead, were often staged at home as well. Mm, that makes sense. As you so aptly guessed, Mariah, they just oh. might be the only image of a certain person, especially if they died young. So remember, in this time period, child mortality is very high. One quarter of children don't make it to their first birthday, and about half of children don't make it out of childhood. So that's, you also see larger families at the time, women bearing more children, women consequently, because they're bearing more children, having a higher chance of dying in childbirth. There's a lot of death going on and they're very confronted with this in their everyday life. Death is much closer at hand in that time period than it seems for a lot of us nowadays. So as I said before, photos of mothers holding deceased children or infants are quite common. And there's a few different ways that the deceased is positioned or portrayed in these postmortem photographs. Sometimes the subject is portrayed as sleeping or at rest. So like before with the portraiture, uh, having that position, the sleeping, the eternal rest, that is one way that bodies might be positioned for postmortem photographs. And I see this as a reflection of the cultural association between death and sleep which kind of carries on today. 
that's not shared in all cultures, but very much in Western culture, we associate death and sleep kind of closely. Especially death of children. And I may be tangentially here, but uh, during the time that I was in England, I actually had to wander around the Brompton Cemetery, which is one of the like great seven cemeteries in the greater London area. And at the very, very far back, there are children's graves. I know how morbid this sounds, but they are constructed like headboards and footboards. And most of them were dated in the 1800s or so. So mm -hmm. about the same time period that we're talking about. Um, and a lot of them said like, so-and-so fell asleep on, right? So total denial of it being a death. It's just eternal sleep, mm -hmm. concrete beds. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to assume there's uh, an amount of projection of innocence that comes with that as well especially yeah. with child children who are dying. Yeah, the innocence of slipping away into sleep. There's mm -hmm. a little bit of that. Yeah, so quite often if you see these post-mortem photographs and you know it's a post-mortem photograph because the subject is posed as if sleeping. So those are more easy to identify if you come across them in an archive or what, what have you, or in a photo mm -hmm. album. If someone looks like they're sleeping and it's a photograph from the 19th century, it, they might be dead. <laughs> <laughs> Going through the family album. And like, oh, wow. They look like they're sleeping. They're not, Timmy. They're not. Sometimes even the dead bodies that they're taking photos, the corpses that they're taking photos of in the, the 19th century, they would sometimes paint eyes on the eyelids so that they could keep the eyes closed but the photo would still come out looking like the person was looking at the I camera i heard about which that is that's terrifying a little creepy in my opinion especially if you had to stand like too far especially if you had to stand next to that for a photograph like and depending yeah. on how long it takes to get the photographer in there right the eyes can collapse after death so that even the eyelids don't sit the way that they would on a living person so I don't know how yeah. fast these photographers were getting to the the home of the deceased from the point of becoming deceased. That's actually but I it would have to be relatively quick. That's actually a good question, uh, Janine. Is how long after the after death were these photos taken? Like, were they pretty snappy about it? Grandma died this morning. We'll get the photographer here this afternoon, or did they have to? treat like did they did they send the bodies essentially to a mortician to kind of you know clean them up or was it just the photographer painting the eyes on the eyelids so i didn't find any exact timing sources for exact timing however there are there's a huge range in the photos so some of them are not in a state of decomposition so those were probably taken pretty quickly after death um, I'm not again, I'm not sure the exact timing of that. But there are other postmortem photos that we can see. I've seen them throughout my research for this episode, where you can quite readily tell that these people are decaying. So while the photos try to straddle life and death for these subjects, death, in a way, is betraying them by showing itself, at least betraying the photographer and the, the family's intention in taking the photograph. The, the signs of decomposition are betraying that uh, intention a little bit. So there, there is a, an array. Okay. So not everybody got photographed right away. Oh, I guess death does always win in the end. It does. <laughs> Even against does. the photographer, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, there's some really interesting philosophy behind that. One of the articles that I was reading, particularly talking about the battle 
I don't know if I'm paraphrasing or not, but like the battle between taking a photo and making it appear to be living, but the corpse is decaying, actively decaying. So it's a little more difficult to, to make it appear as you want it to, to appear. There's some uh, philosophy in that article. So I can link it to you guys if you're interested. Yeah, I wouldn't mind However, that. back on track. Yeah. Other times, a subject might be posed to replicate life, however, and they will be surrounded by their family. So that's kind of the, the situation that I referred to earlier. Oh, my grandfather just died. We put him in a Sunday best. We all gathered around and took a one last family photo. These ones are going to be a little bit more difficult to identify for those who don't know that this is a photo of someone deceased. However, there are ways that you can identify them, particularly because in this time period, photography required longer exposure. So deceased subjects were easier to photograph because they were more still. So if you see a photograph and one person is particularly still and the rest are a little bit blurry, that person who is quite clear might be dead. Oh. Oh. Might be. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe they're just really, really still people, but... Perhaps. Perhaps. But more likely. <laughs> Apparently there were problems as well when mothers would get their living children photographs. The living children would be very hard to keep still for the required amount of time to get the exposure for the photograph. And I can't remember exactly what it was called, but there's a phenomenon where the mother there's blurs in the photograph of the mother going to comfort or position the child to keep them still but the mother's not actually supposed to be in the photograph there's a term for it i came across while i was doing the research for this episode but i can't recall exactly what it was oh it's i imagine that results in a lot of the like ooh, it's a spooky victorian ghost and it's like no actually it's a mother just coming over to be like stay still I wonder if it's uh, yeah. an informal name for it would be the smack cam. It's a mom going to smack <laughs> her kid to stay still next to her, their dead sibling. Um, yeah, the equivalent of mom reaching over the car seat and being like, stop hitting your brother. Yeah. Stand next to your dead sister. Yeah, I can't imagine having kids stay still for that long, considering how hard it is to get kids to still stay still long enough for, you know, a photo at Sears or Walmart or wherever kids are taking portraits now, if they are being portraited still. I was going to say, does Sears even still exist? It may I not. It does. Well, when you could get photos at Sears. Showing our age. Ugh. Yeah. Luckily, I mean, we've got uh, quick exposure ago. cameras now. <laughs> Thank God. Because then you really don't have any still photos of your kids when they're alive because they won't stop moving. Which I guess plays into the, this may be the one photo you get because they die young. Exactly. So remember I mentioned, we talked briefly about the carte de visite earlier, if you recall. Those are the ones that mm. people somewhat traded, like trading cards. You'd find multiple in the, in the photo album. They're quite small, easy to send. Ooh, I got a shiny Janine card. <laughs> Want to trade it for my smelly grandpa card? <laughs> super, super rare. Shiny. Uh, yeah, so it's easy to distribute multiple copies of a photo, particularly if someone was deceased. Um, anybody who cared about that person during their lifetime, you could pay to get a copy of it and send it to them, which kind of revolutionized memory of deceased ones, especially youth, children, that kind of thing. Mm. 
Mm, makes sense. However, this practice was not to last. Obviously, it's not something that we commonly do nowadays. Death's a little more taboo in our modern era. So there has to be some kind of process to get from the Victorians who are taking photos of their dead loved ones and us today who are not, essentially. How do you think it played out that we got from Victorians taking photos of their dead loved ones to nowadays when we consider it taboo? Um, I definitely think that a change in culture is obviously the main reason. But as far as like minor reasons, I think part of me wants to say like the the quality in photography has increased, so it's a lot harder to you know fake fake um, a body looking alive. I don't know if that's actually true or not, but that's just my thirty second instinct. Mm-hmm. My guess would be World War One because people were dying away from home and in semi horrible ways. Same way that the civil, the American Civil War brought on, you know, the advent of cremation as a way of getting your bodies home without them decomposing totally by the time they got there. I'm imagining the mass disruption and uh, inability to get to your dead might have done it. And or the funeral industry came in and was like, stop dying at home. Come die with us. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Um, talking about the... The dead of World War One. I'll get to that in a future episode. So that's something that really, really interests me as far as my area of history that I like to study. But I left you little little breadcrumbs throughout the episode. But the most the most obvious answer is when we hit the 20th century, fewer people are dying. Oh, oh yeah. I guess that'll do it. I guess that'll do it. <laughs> but that's more more the why, not so much the the how, right? So direct photos of deceased subjects became less popular throughout the 20th century. However, there are some cases where people are still taking photos of their dead loved ones. And when I say direct photos, I mean a direct photo of the corpse, the dead yeah. body posed, however you might think. This practice is in decline somewhat, partially because not as many people are dying. We're starting to see a sharp decrease in the mortality rate. Um, however, Barbara Norfleet investigated further and concluded that the practice continued, in the, at least in the U.S., right up until the Second World War among both rural and urban working and middle class ethnic minorities. And I think she was particularly looking at a study of a photographer based in Harlem um, and African-American communities. I didn't look into the source itself, but I came across this in my research. So the practice wasn't completely abandoned by everyone across the board, yeah. but it wasn't so common for those more well-off or white middle-class families as the craze was for the Victorian era, essentially. Huh. But in some capacity, there are still post-mortem photographs being taken. So the focus ah. kind of shifted from the deceased, so taking direct photos of the corpse and their dead body posed sleeping or posed to appear alive, whatever format that might take. So the focus shifted from that to the funeral and the mourners. So we're moving the focus from the dead to the living, the people who are surviving them a little bit. Mm. So those are more, that's more of what you might see today photos of funerals, elaborate displays of flowers surrounding a casket, whether the casket is open or not. If it's closed, you might even see a photo of the person as they were 
alive displayed instead of that open casket, which is kind of an interesting commentary on our values as they're changing in Western culture, I suppose, through this time period. Putting more emphasis on the living rather than the dead and how the death is affecting the living and those mourners. Yeah, and how we, we've we really come to think, oh, well, I want to remember them as they were alive instead of facing, I guess in this case, literally the fact that someone has died. And I, I sometimes wonder if that alienates us from our own grief, that we take that type of closure away from us or away, away from ourselves to not have the kind of the end cap of the reality that somebody has died. Yeah, I guess. I yeah, kinda... I will pick up on that thread in just a short little bit. But that is an interesting thought that you bring up, Mariah. It should be noted that the private nature of grief makes it difficult to know the true extent of the popularity of post-mortem photography, however. So many of these photos only exist in family albums, and we don't really know about them, and we can't really take an account of how many of these are out there until they make their way into public or community archives. And even then, that's only going to be a small sampling of the ones that ever existed, right? So what we see in archives is not everything ever produced. Mm -hmm. It's just what happened to survive and make its way into archives. So it's hard to draw concrete conclusions about how popular or how unpopular post-mortem photography of, directly of deceased subjects was throughout this time period. But it mm -hmm. definitely wasn't as prominent as it was in the 19th century. Less bodies to photograph. Yep. yep. <laughs> Number one, fewer dead people. Was it Occam's razor? The simplest solution or the simplest answer is usually Often correct. The right one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the real question becomes not, why are you taking a photo of a dead person? But instead, would you rather have a photo of someone dead to remember them by or no photo at all? Right? That's yeah, the choice the you're making. I, I know that we are currently running a death podcast, but I am very lucky in that I have only ever been to one funeral. Um, and I have never actually lost anybody that I've been super close with. Not yet. It's inevitable. Unless I get hit by a bus tomorrow. In which case, I'll see y'all later. Uh, <laughs> so I I genuinely don't know. Like My gut instinct is I would not want awful to think about. But if a loved one that I have in mind right now were to uh, perish, I think that I would definitely not want to see... I would not want an open casket. I'd rather just have a picture. But And I don't think that that would take away from my grieving process, because either way, it's going to suck. And, like, obviously... But again, I'm also coming at this from a, a position of inexperience, as while I've been to a funeral, it wasn't someone I was close with. So... Mm. And also your feelings might change depending on if you already have a photo of them very much alive, right? Yes. Well, everyone who I would be very, very sad to see pass on in my life right now, I have like tons of photos of because I know at the beginning of the, of the episode, I said I take pictures of food and screen caps of memes, but I actually, I like to take pictures of people I care about, whether it's flattering to them or not is, uh, it's their own problem, but <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a, a lot more candid shots nowadays. Yeah. Yes. 
Well, I mean, I think I think it's an interesting point that you bring up that, you know, ideally you wouldn't want to have an open casket. And so I'm kind of on the flip side. I've been to a lot of funerals. Um, I have one out of six grandparents still alive, and I've lost uh, three uncles along the way as well. And a lot of those deaths all occurred within like a five-year period when I was a teenager. So that was a fun time. Not. But now that a lot of those deaths are, you know, 10 years on, being able to look back at photographs that we have, and of course we don't have any post-mortem photographs, and cremation is the way that we go in my family generally, but being able to go back and take care of photos and of associated memorabilia, I found is a really kind of cathartic way of almost taking care of the dead. And I think that that maybe would be an aspect of it for Victorian families, even as, you know, as funeral industries move in or as there's less deaths or even because there's so many deaths that having a photo to look after and to take care of is a way of postmortem care as well. To kind Maybe of, I'm scrambling though. I was going to say, to kind of build off of that, again, I am lucky that I have not lost anybody that I am close with, but as someone who worked as an archaeologist and has worked in museums and whether I think I've realized it in the past or not, especially with my current workplace, it's a family home and my job is essentially to look after their stuff. They've all been dead for all... All of the people who've lived there have been dead for quite a while. And so mm -hmm. I do consider my work, even though I'm not dealing with a human remains or anything like that, I kind of still consider it post-mortem work. For me personally, memory and preserving memory and making sure that people aren't forgotten is kind of my own. I'm getting like super philosophical here and I apologize, <laughs> but... Just as far as like photographs, like I think that we have a box of photographs in our collection where we have, we have no idea who any of them are, or very few of them, and I'm actually really invested in putting a name to those faces. They don't really benefit from it; they're dead. But I guess I want I want them to be reassured in their life a hundred years ago that they wouldn't be forgotten. I guess it's my weird belief if that makes sense someone yes, no, I agree with you. in the future 100 years ago if they could get a feeling from the future that you know someone was going to try and look after their memory 120 years from their time i think that's important yeah if that makes any agree. sense at all <laughs> i agree as well yeah if the only thing that's left of somebody is a photo record of them then at least there's that right yeah. rather than people who know who perished long before the advent of photography or other means and I of mean, records keeping. For most, like for the history of the human race, there is absolutely nothing left of 99.999% of the human race. So I think it's, yeah. I guess, I think that's why I think it's so important to remember, to remember and acknowledge that this person who maybe was only just a baker or was only maybe just a whatever but they are important. They lived at one point and I am remembering them. Yeah. I, think I just, the the Doctor Who philosophy, uh, just, you know, there's, I've never met anyone who wasn't important. Yeah. I think that that's a really good thing to keep in mind when dealing with history and when you're dealing with the cultural remains, whether it's human remains or 
a book that somebody owned. Yeah, absolutely. We're getting fucking philosophical up in here. <laughs> getting right into the shit. Episode three, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's that's part of why we're doing this too, right? Is because everybody deserves to be remembered. And that means that we have to acknowledge that people lived and that they died. Yeah. That's actually a perfect tie-in to kind of my final point. So the last little thing I want to talk about here is posing the question a little bit. Who do you think stands to benefit from post-mortem photography today? Who do you think would go this route today? Are you talking like demographics of people, cultures? Uh, or no, are talking I'm just... about like crime scene photography, yeah. which is the modern sort of equivalent of body photography. There is that aspect. I think I'm more thinking of who do you think would decide to take a photo of a deceased loved one today, just generally? Is there a situation you think that that would be beneficial to the, to the people asking for the photo to be taken? Um, mm. Everything that I can kind of think of are like uncomfortable situations, unfortunately, like to not to bring some negativity into this, but I can't think of like a positive reason to have that done, I guess, just because like photographs are everywhere. Everybody is having their photo taken, especially, yeah, just everyone has a camera in their pocket now. So I feel like no matter what, you kind of have a photo. There is a photo of you somewhere that shows you alive. So I think I think that would be a better alternative at all times to a corpse photo. Yeah, I imagine there'd be scenarios where that is something that you would necessarily want. Like there's so much kind of stigma and taboo around genuine imagery of dead bodies, right? But I imagine if you were, you know, if you were a parent or a sibling or a partner and somebody had been like missing for a long time, if they had been lost overseas, having, I think, photo proof almost, and maybe this is straddling the line more into forensic and crime scene photography. But you know, if your if your kid's been gone for eight, six months and you're like, I just need to know, you know, whether they find them alive or not, I think there'd be a closure aspect of it. I'm just gonna say there's also lots of cultures that are much more upfront about death and about caring for the body and caring for the deceased that may derive importance from having that record. Like you said, the photography aspect of it did continue for a long time in Harlem among black communities living there. So that I think there's a cultural aspect there as well in terms of how the the death and the care of the dead plays out. Those those are good points. Um, and this is kind of a, not, I, wouldn't, I don't want to say as a trick question, but. But, but it's a trick the, question. <laughs> there was so, a right um, answer. The, the, I'm not saying this is the only answer, but this is the answer that um, kind of came most forwardly to me through my research. And the one area where postmortem photography is quite extensively practiced nowadays is for the parents of stillborn children. Oh, oh really? Yeah, that is So th this is a case where you don't even have the opportunity to take a photo of this child, this baby, while it's alive. And it's a very traumatic experience for, for the parents, obviously, for obvious reasons. The service is sometimes provided directly by the hospital mm -hmm. um, and the mothers as they're delivering the stillborn children. Because usually the doctors will be able to tell beforehand, before labor starts. Sometimes labor is even induced. 
they are put in like special areas and they're given bereavement care right away. Yeah. And this is kind of an echo of the early death of children in the 19th century. So back then you don't get a chance to take a photo beforehand because photography is not super common. And now with the stillborns, you're not going to get a chance to take a photo of them otherwise because they're not alive outside of the mother's body. But the connection doesn't begin at birth for parents, especially for the mother. The connection begins, it can begin before you even feel the fetus moving in there. But I think a lot of people associate it with the first kick. Some babies will die quite close to their delivery. And that those in those cases, that's really traumatic. So this is likely the only photo the parents will ever have of their baby. And there's one organization in particular that I found some information about. They're called Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, and they provide this service free of charge to parents of stillborn children. So I'm just going to read a little blurb from their website, because I think what they're doing is quite special. It can help in the the healing process for parents of stillborn children. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is a quote from their website. Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep offers the gift of healing, hope, and honor to parents experiencing the death of a baby through the overwhelming power of remembrance portraits. Professional-level photographers volunteer their time to conduct an intimate portrait session, capturing the only moments parents spend with their babies. Parents are gifted with delicately retouched heirloom black-and-white portraits free of charge. These priceless images serve as an important step in the healing recovery for bereaved families. Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, Remembrance Photography validates the existence and presence of these precious babies by honoring their legacy. So that kind of touches on some of the things that you were talking about. It's some tangible connection that this person existed. Mm -hmm. And it's not even that these, these babies were even alive in our traditional sense, even though they are, they're alive within the mother's womb. But it's something for these families to hold on to that memory that validates their connection with that being forever. They'll have those those memories. And there are even some cases, I don't know if this is now I lay me down to sleep, but I read an article about a family who would, their baby was stillborn and their immediate reaction when they were asked if they wanted photos done was, oh my gosh, no. But mm. they thought about it and they decided to go ahead and do it. And they got not only this photo, but they did um, kind of molds of the baby's hands and feet so that they have those, mm-hmm. um, just that connection, right? And I th- just think that's a really touching use of this medium of postmortem photography. Running on a little bit of a, a a downer, but I do think it is it is quite a worthwhile endeavor for us for them to be doing this 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 organization and people who decide to provide this service to parents yeah absolutely absolutely yeah and their their reach is quite wide too they operate now i lay me down to sleep operates in 40 countries and they according to them have gifted more than forty thousand complimentary portrait sessions since 2005 oh wow wow yeah it's i'm glad that a a company or a group i guess like this exists yeah definitely i think for take pictures for for quite some time um the the convention was to separate the parents from the baby like don't show them don't show them the even the body but i feel like the thought process around this this grief 
has completely changed and it's spend some time, have, make that memory, keep some, get something to keep and to remember them by, and that will help and that'll aid with the bereavement process. So I think that's, uh, it's bittersweet. It's very bittersweet. Yeah. Yeah. But death is, uh, death is something we all learn to deal with in our own ways. And I'm glad that parents of, of stillborns or even babies who die very, very soon there after their birth, they have this ability. And we have post-mortem photography to thank for that. Yeah. Y'all take photos of your loved ones. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or better yet, love your loved ones. Go hug your mom or your brother or your partner. Yeah. And also take photos of them, just in case you don't <laughs> do it regularly. <laughs> Do it all. Ideally, while they're alive and they can consent to having their while they're alive. Well, I think I'm uh, sufficiently depressed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I this think... is a podcast about death. Yes, yes. But sometimes it's. I think there's two different. There's going to be two different types of episodes in this series, and I think we're going to have some fun isn't this a wacky practice hurt hurt and then we're gonna have some you know some real talk heavy episodes and this is definitely ending on a heavy episode note i'm not sure if it ever got to be wacky but it's these quite ones. as wacky as some others <laughs> I thought kurgan's yeah, was painting eyes on the eyelids yeah i promise not every one of my episodes is going to be so so serious but no no <laughs> I think it's good to have a mix. Well, that is my take on postmortem photography and the practice of taking photos of the dead, particularly in the Victorian era, but trying to trace it all the way up to, to modern day. Remember, death is all around us. We all die. Take care of yourself. See you next time. Hug your mom. Mortals Podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals, Christia, Mariah, and Janine. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast Mortals, on Tumblr at Mortals Podcast, and on Instagram at Mortals underscore podcast. Our music is A Mermaid's Eulogy by Etienne Roussel. Thanks for listening, mortals. Take care of yourselves out there. <laughs>